Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillah. Salatu vesselam ala Resulillah ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve men vela. Selamu aleykum ve rahmetullahi ve berekatuhu. I'm in the city of Birmingham Sharif in uh, in the UK and I've come to see our brother Sheikh Asar Rashid. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaykum salam wa rahmatullah. Ahlan wa sahlan. And we've uh, just enjoyed a cup of tea and coffee and uh, after Sheikh's done his afternoon gardening chores um, but we wanted to talk about something like a serious discussion, which we had a chat on the phone some weeks ago. You were going to be giving a lecture, I think, on the period of time before the demise of the Ottoman Khilafah. Yes, um, <clears throat> I find it interesting that uh, many of our youth now are, have a peaked interest in the formation of the Khilafah, if we can say formation and also the demise yeah. of the Khilafah, which really has great implications for us today. Meaning, just disputes like the, mm. the moon dispute and Eid yes. alone. If we had a Sultan, a Khalifa in Istanbul today as Muslim minority in the West, we would just refer back to the Khalifa, write a letter and say, determine for us the day of Eid and determine for us uh, the day of Ramadan. And simple disputes like this would have been resolved. So many young people now are taking uh, great interest with regard to our recent history mm. of uh, the dismantling of the Khilafah mm. and the effect, also the after effect, the post effect of the dismantling of the Khilafah. So someone invited me to one of the universities to deliver a lecture on uh, the end period mm. of the Dawla, Dawlatul Uthmaniyya and also the great implications that had for us as Muslims. And uh, I, in a similar period, I mean we, we usually talk about this in Hizmet Tahrir around the 3rd of March in the UK because that's the Gregorian anniversary but actually around the world 28th of Rajab was the Hijri date of when the formal abolition of the Khilafah happened so we'd had similar like a series of talks and stuff and I thought we were going to have a conversation about it and we thought we'd film it and then inshallah share some of our thoughts. It's with interesting you. you mentioned the date 28th of Rajab because many of the scholars were of the position that 27th of Rajab yes. signifies the date of, of Al-Isra al-Miraj. Al-Miraj yes. So the, the night journey of the Prophet yes, and, and the Ascension That's right. and the Ascension occurred from Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. Yes. And from Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, where the Dome of the Rock is today, yes, yes. that is the central location for the Muslim world today. Mm. And with uh, Donald Trump announcing that Jerusalem is the capital for um, the, the Zionist state of Israel, occupied yes. Palestine, I mentioned that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, already foretold that the Khilafah shall be re-established in Al-Quds al-Sharif. Yes. And Al-Masjid al-Aqsa and Al-Quds al-Sharif signifies the capital of the Khilafah. Inshallah. So, uh, of course, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa foretold that this will occur. So, ala raghmi anfi Donald Trump, as I said, upon the, um, on the nose of Donald Trump, this falls. Yes. That it shall occur, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shall re-establish the Khilafah and the capital of the Khilafah shall be Al-Quds al-Sharif as foretold by Rasulullah 
sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Inshallah, Ya Rabbi, we will see that in our lifetime, inshallah. Um, let's roll back a little bit. Um, just one thing I want to ask you. I mean, you've talked about the Ottomans, Uthmani Khilafa, um, in talks you've done. Some people will actually say, oh, yeah, that's not a legitimate Khilafa. Khilafa ended with Khilafa Rashida, those uh, eras that we call the Umayyad Khilafa, the Abbasid Khilafa, the Uthmani Khilafa, they're not valid. Uh, what would you say to those sort of people when they argue that? Well, firstly, um, that mistake is based upon a mistaken understanding, meaning there's a rule which is Al-Hukmu ala shayfar'un an tasawurihi. A judgment of something is based upon, is a subsidiary of how you conceive that thing. Mm -hmm. So many people have a, a utopian concept of Khilafa. Mm. Khilafa is not a utopia. You can have a caliph who commits uh, acts which would be deemed as fisq, meaning acts of aggression, um, uh, disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A khalifa can disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm in the sense that it does not entail disbelief. Additional to that, some of the, what they could refer to as Hawashi, the, the subjects or the, the people around the Khalifa could be corrupt. And this happened in Islamic history. Mm. Al-Khilafat al-Rashida, however, refers mm. to the prophesied Khulafa. Al-Khilafat al-Rashida, who are only 12. So the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa foretold that there shall be after me 12 Khulafa. That 12 Khulafa, as Imam Jalaluddin al-Siyuti and others have pointed out, is referring to a long list of Khulafa who are, in terms of fiqh, jurisprudence, legitimate Khulafa. But there will only ever be 12 Khulafa who are upon the, the Rashida way. So in history... You've had uh, Sayyiduna Abu Bakr Siddiq, Sayyiduna Umar, Sayyiduna Uthman, Sayyiduna Ali, Sayyiduna Imam Hassan, and then th th those five were referred to as uh, Al Khulafa Al Rashidun. Yes. Some of them placed Amir Muawiyah as Al Khalifa Al Rashida, mm -hmm. a sixth one. So then Umar bin Abdul Aziz, uh, a seventh one. Yes. But they did not negate Khilafa from those who came in between. Yes. They just said they were not upon the Rashida way, meaning in Alamadhajin Nabuwa in every way. Upon the prophetic way in yes. every aspect. Meaning personal piety. So those Khulafa we would say were awliya of Allah. Mm -hmm. The hadith mentions Man Adali Waliyan Fakad Avantuh Bil Harb whoever opposes a wali of mine. These Khulafa were awliya. I mean someone like Umar bin Abdul Aziz was a wali of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So According to some scholars, seven of those Khulafa al-Rashida have passed. Mm. Some would add Harun al-Rashid. Now, many people read false reports regarding Harun al-Rashid, and that was actually accidental propaganda regarding yeah. Harun al-Rashid. Harun al-Rashid was a very pious individual, mm. but people who read Arabian Nights and yes, other Orientalist, Orient, yeah. uh, 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 Orientalist uh, um works which try to re-characterize um, those Khulafa. So some of them added Harun al-Rashid. So whether those uh, the 12 Khulafa, actually Al-Imam al-Mahdi radiallahu anhu shall be a Khalifa in the end of times, yes. will be the 12th Khalifa. 
Yes. But prior to him, there will be eleven. Eleven. So yes. whether it's a matter of ijtihad, whether people who people consider some of them, some of them have been foretold. So the the answering your question, these people tend to think that Khalifa is a utopian concept, mm. when in reality it's the the term used in books of jurisprudence and theology. The term used is al imama. Mm -hmm. Which is leadership. Now, if you have an imam of a masjid, it doesn't entail that the imam of the masjid who who leads the prayer mm. will be like Sayyiduna Umar radiAllahu yes. Nevertheless, you have an imam who leads the prayer, it fulfills the conditions, the obligation, the and fulfills the yes. conditions. So, if we place, meaning the ummah today collectively, mm. which is a possibility, if the non-Muslims can have EU, the UN. Uh, NATO, the Muslims can have uh, can appoint a Khalifa mm. who leads the Ummah, but it does not entail that the Khilafah is a utopia. You will still have problems. Yeah, you will still have social issues. We will still have economic issues. We will still have. But what the, what we fulfill is the obligation as well as uh, with someone being appointed as Khalifa who undertakes all these different obligations. The problems of the Ummah, uh, some of them, many of them are resolved. Many of them, yeah. like problematic borders and economic issues and uh, poverty and so many different things. I, I, I sometimes find that to address this, like you said, that the, the fiqhi criteria, the jurisprudential criteria for a Khalifa was fulfilled under the Ottoman era, certainly until the time of Abdul Hamid. May Allah give him rahmah. Abdul Hamid II, may Allah give him rahmah. Um, even if people want to dispute the Young Turk period, which we're going to talk about shortly. Uh, the second thing I, I think is interesting is that, broadly speaking, there was a consensus amongst the Muslims in the world at the time that these Ottoman rulers were their, were their khalifs at the time. Well, uh, the the only condition some uh, disputed was whether they were Qurayshi or not. But yes. what the, the uh, as Sheikh Abu Bakr al-Mashhur in this work, Al-Ussas wal Muntaliqat, this work, so I'll show this to you, the viewers, Al-Ussas wal Muntaliqat. We're going to share a few titles with you during our discussion we thought might be interesting. He actually covers the ancestry of the Ottomans and they actually did have a Qurayshi root. Mm. So that is covered in, in this work, but he mentions the Ijma after the abolition of the Abbasi Khilafah, mm. how the, the last Abbasi Khalifa gave the mantle to the Mamalik, mm. the Mamalik. And after the Mamalik, uh, that was passed on to the Uthmaniyun. So the Uthmaniyun, to claim their legitimacy, they mentioned the uh, Qurayshi ancestry. Okay. So they actually have a nasab to, to the Quraysh. That's documented in this work. So oh, okay. some people may dispute this okay. because of their Turkish roots, yes. but they have some link with the, with the Quraysh, meaning that was not totally done away with. Of course, that's an issue that's mentioned in uh, the works of Qalam. This is an ijtihadi issue, isn't it? I mean, about being Quraysh is one. Some people say it's a condition. Some people say it's a condition of preference upon other well, with conditions. regard to that, the scholars that I follow, they say there's ijma on that issue. Yeah, yeah. But how I will um, give the best response to that would be 
what al-imam al-juwayni abdul malik al-juwayni rahimallahu ta'ala he states that if the condition is mafqood meaning uh, uh, there is uh, it, uh, that condition is not found you see Qurayshi is not the only condition. There are other conditions, mm-hmm. like the person must be from Ahlul Ijtihad in governance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you have Qurayshi people who do not have the other conditions, yes. and you have someone who has the, con- uh, other, conditions. the other conditions, then that non Qurayshi is given preference in that scenario. So it can be argued that in the time of the Dawla, Dawlatul Uthmaniya, mm. the Uthmaniyun were the most qualified to uh, be Khulafa. So we've gone from our first book suggestion for the saintly, you can say, to the much less saintly. This is Bernard Lewis, who yeah. is a historian in the USA, beloved of the neocons, in his book, The Emergence of Modern Turkey. And there was an interesting sentence in this book, which is worth sharing. Um, just so you know what observers of the Ottoman Khilafa, the Ottoman state, thought about it. So Bernard Lewis says in this, from its foundation until its fall, the Ottoman Empire was a state dedicated to the advancement or defense of the power and faith of Islam. From its foundation till its fall. So actually, and this is, will be interesting, I think, in our discussion talking about the end of the Ottoman Khilafah, even in that time, even when it was termed the sick man of Europe, even when it was a shadow of its former self as a power, both in terms of worldly power and its adherence to Islam, it was still seen as the state in the world that was there to champion Islam. Well, there are some people who attempt to tarnish the history of Dawlat al-Uthmaniya by mentioning the slavery of European children and enlisting them into the army but what they don't mention is that the first state to abolish slavery in the entire world was a Dawlat al-Uthmaniya under Sultan Muhammad al-Fatih. After Sultan Muhammad al-Fatih conquered Constantinople which was foretold by the Messenger of Allah he was praised in fact Na'ma meaning a great leader he wrote a document which is still preserved in Turkey, which abolished slavery. And so s- slavery was first abolished by a Dawlatul Uthmaniya. Additional to that, many of the reforms which are Sultan Abdul Hamid, mm. which brings us into our yes. discussion. A Sultan Abdul Hamid, rahimallah, built the great railway line. Hijaz Railway. The Hijaz yeah. Railway, which modern states with, uh, with all the oil wealth, Yes, and all the um, the access to different technologies and yes. engineers from across the world are unable to imitate. Meaning, to this day, uh, the Arabs who revolted against mm. the Dawla, for whatever reason, they are una- unable to establish a railway similar to what a Sultan Abdul Hamid Thani, rahimullah, established. Additional to that, in one of my conversations, informal conversations with a, uh, a, a lay person in the uh, academic sense, he mentioned uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid did not do a good task. Mm. I said, why? He said Ataturk defended the territory of modern day Turkey better than a Sultan Abdul Hamid. Mm. 
I pointed out to that person that prior to the uh, deposing of Sultan Abdul Hamid Thani in 1908, the territory that was governed by Sultan Abdul Hamid, what he inherited was preserved for the vast majority, meaning he governed Yemen, he governed the Hejaz, the Arabian Peninsula, uh, Syria, uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, Iraq, Iraq, and uh, parts of Africa. All this territory was still preserved under his rule. So the, the disintegration of the Khilafah, meaning that in terms of territory, territory. only occurred after they removed the Sultan Abdul Hamid Afani, after mm. 1908. Mm. Then you, we, when we move on into the history of uh, how decisions were made after 1908, we will go on to that. But the third thing which I wanted to mm. point out was the preservation of Al-Madinat al under Sultan Abdul Hamid Afani, mm-hmm. meaning uh, you have al qasidat al-Burda Sharifa painted around al-Hujurat, the chambers mm-hmm. of the Holy mm-hmm. Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when you go to do ziyara. Mm-hmm. All that was commissioned by Sultan Abdul Hamid Thani. Mm-hmm. In fact, even the poetry praising the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam where he writes, Anta Allah, you are the door to Allah, meaning the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. That calligraphy is still there yeah. to this day. Yeah. Even though the Saudi uh, Wahhabis, they have painted over some mm. of the calligraphy mm. to cover because they disagree theologically mm. with some of the mm. poetry. But the importance that a Sultan Abdul Hamid Thani gave to Islamic heritage, but especially to um, to the prophetic yeah. city. Uh, city and the, the grave of the Prophet Wasallam. This is a third strategic importance mm. Uh, important uh, character characteristic of a Sultan Abdul Hamid Thani, and I think people don't. Re- I mean, you you've described that beautifully in terms of the area that the he as the Khalifa had governance over at that time, but also in the western part of the Uthmani Khilafah, which is now Eastern Europe or the Balkans, these kind of places. That was where the territorial integrity was being challenged and that was often provoked by external forces so whether it was the Russians who were trying to uh, incite in certain places in Eastern Europe or whether it was uh, the British who were encouraging some kind of unrest in other places um, he as the Khalifa inherited a lot of that problem that and and those problems were not unique to him this was it tends to be the case in world politics that if you're a top state people will target you um, and so you know if Mustafa Kemal as a nationalist only wanted to defend the integrity of what is the borders of modern-day Turkey uh, you can't really compare that to the vast area that the Uthmani Khilafah covered in reality he lived in the time that the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa foretold and tada'alaykum al-umam which means the nations shall call against you. Yes. Uh, the hadith states the way akala, meaning the, the ones who consume from a platter, yes. are called. So Sultan Abdul Hamid Afani, rahimahullah, lived in that period where yes. the nations, yes. meaning some people try reinterpreting this as being Ya'juj and Ma'juj, yes. but the hadith states very clear, yeah. clearly, 
al-umam yeah. that the nations shall call against call you against so you. you had a conglomerate of different uh, nations uh, uh, empires at that time yes the british empire you had uh, french. the french the the spanish yes and the portuguese yes and then uh, italians all these different nations yes. Co- congregated around not only uh, a Dawla Tulufmani but also Mughal India so from the 1600s onwards and in fact um, for those of you who don't really know much about the history of World War One, at that time the Russians had their eye on actually taking Istanbul Constantinople actually for themselves as their prize um, and in fact it was their own revolution the Russian revolution during that period that undermined that so, you so, mean the uh, revolution in 1912? And, uh, Bolshevik. In the Bolshevik revolution, yeah. 1917, sorry, yeah. yes. No, the that, that, that kind of interrupted that plan and the Russian status in World War I. The Tsar the yeah. was overthrown. Uh, and in fact, the Bolsheviks, the Bolsheviks, interestingly, they wanted to distance themselves from Tsarist policies. So they started at that stage to extricate themselves from World War I. In fact, they revealed the secret of the Sykes-Picot Accord between mm. Britain and France to divide uh, the the, the land. Just uh, regarding Sykes. Yes. So Mark Sykes, you so mean? So Mark Sykes, yes. So this book, which uh, the Caliph's Last Heritage, yes. I'll show your viewers the Caliph's Last Heritage. Why this book is interesting? Now I received uh, this book recently. I haven't read the book. Yeah. I read a few passages. But why this book interested me was because you mentioned uh, Mark Sykes and one yeah. of the books you brought with yeah. you, yeah. which was this one. Yes. Uh, a Peace to End All Peace. Yes. And I, the, yeah, yeah. the, the funny thing was... Another edition of the same I have an older, yeah. uh, older edition older because I'll go yeah. into why, when and why I actually acquired this book. Yes. So we both had the same book. But his name appears quite a bit. It does indeed yes. in this book. It does. So, indeed. a piece to end all, end all pieces is a book we both of us would. Recommend. I would recommend it. Yeah. So, he's mentioned quite a bit. But why this book? I uh, I found interesting, and and you yourself, you said you're gonna. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think it looks interesting. Is because can... I want to understand. See, the Orientalists read yes. our literature to understand our mindset. Yeah. But what I want to do is read his uh, understanding of how he perceived uh, the the Khilafah. So this starts, in fact, what he refers to as the Turkish Empire, but in reality, it's the Khilafah. He starts with, but the, he starts with the Al Khulafa al Rashidun. Yes, he does. And then he finishes with a uh, Dawla Tulufmania, and he's a contemporary of a Sultan Abdul Hamid al and, and this was originally printed in. Uh, I can't see it. 1915. Okay, 1915. So uh, that will be an interesting read. I, I caveat everything I say to people when we're talking about histories written by non-Muslim historians. Uh, there is going to be an inevitable bias uh, in what they say. So I always say, read what you have with a pinch of salt and you can, you can learn a lot from these things. But... Um, Think critically. But this individual, Mark Sykes, he was the individual who mapped out the yes, modern Middle Yes, East. indeed, indeed. And indeed. gave the flags also. Yes. So th- this, this, if you haven't read this, A Line in the Sand, 
by James Barr, an English historian, where he goes through the 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 thinking that was around the Sykes Pico uh, agreement, um, and how you know it, wh- one thing you get from this book, even though Britain and France were allies at the time, how treacherous they were to each other as well as to everyone else, because the deal that Sykes and Pico made with each other, even behind closed doors, they were talking about uh, redrawing those lines in their own favours uh, at the time. And, and you get this impression that they are really a very treacherous bunch. Um, let's, let's go back to our, uh, one of our, really I, I have to say one of our great heroes in Islamic history, Sultan Abdul Hamid Athani. And um, he, um, I, as I said, I was reading about the period when he became the Sultan as a very <clears throat> young man. And his, one of the chief ministers at the time was a guy called Midhat Pasha. Yeah, Midhat Pasha. Midhat Pasha was implicated in the assassination of Sultan Abdul Aziz predecessor of Sultan Abdul Hamid because Sultan Abdul Aziz was said to disagree with him on points of policy including the adoption of a, a constitution which was very western orientated very very like uh, following a trend in the Uthmani Khilafah for a few decades of introducing laws that were actually born out of the western enlightenment tradition and uh, Abdul Hamid, they thought, was a reformer, a westernizer, as this yeah. young man, because I think he travelled to the West as a young man. And subhanAllah, one of his first moves that he did, very deftly as a, as a, as a new young sultan, was to dismiss Midat Pasha, who was a very powerful man in the state at the time, um, disagreeing with him on his policies. And... Uh, showing his hand after he was appointed sultan that actually he was not going to continue this trend of westernization that had started. Rather, he was going to go for a policy which was more described by Western historians as pan-Islamism or, or an Islamization of the Uthmani Khilafah. Well, uh, with regard to that, what we term as globalization today, mm. uh, what the Khilafah was, was a shield mm. against globalization. So the difference between the regions that the Uthmanian governed and what the British governed or the French governed was firstly that the Khilafah, not only the Ottomans, wherever the Khilafah went, even during the Umayyad uh, period and other periods, they would not strip mm. those people of their cultures, their languages, and everything to do with even their religions. Mm. The, the Khilafah, in fact, would preserve... Um, for instance, in Algeria, the Adolatul Uthmaniyah ruled Algeria. But Algerians today do not speak Turkish. Mm. French ruled Algeria for a lesser period of time. But the Algerians speak French. Yes. There's more influence of French mm. culture in Algeria yes. than there is Turkish culture. Yes. Likewise, Yemen. Yes. Uh, the Dawla uh, governed Yemen for hundreds of years. Yes. There is no remnants of Turkish culture in Yemen today. Mm. Why is that? Because the unifying factor was Islam. 
So good. Islam yes. and Khilafah is a shield against Western Anglo, um, you can say Anglo-Saxon or Anglosphere or uh, the high-tech North, so many different labels. Judeo-Christian. Uh, Ju Judeo-Christian yeah, yeah, yeah. Zionist alliance. Yeah. Uh, 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 hegemony of the entire globe yes. and uh, stripping, uh, not only stripping people of their culture, but in some cases having genocide occurring in places like Australia. Uh, if you notice, countries like Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, America, uh, uh, parts of South America, what do they have in common? Uh, they have in common that they that genocide occurred with the original inhabitants of those places. By the way, I, I want to just interject there because I don't want anyone to misunderstand. When, you, when we say Judeo-Christian or Zionist, if you read James Barr's book, The Line in the Sand, he very openly says that those politicians at the time of World War I, like Lloyd George and Churchill and these people, they were both Christians who, Christian Zionists, i.e. they were very staunch Christians who believed in uh, the handing over, establishing of a homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine. Well, Balfour Declaration, which I'm going to move yeah. on to, Yes. what I wanted to mention was uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid Afani was the last shield from the Muslim resistance against uh, um, against the uh, globalization yeah, that we are, the the. Do, do, I mean, do you want to tell the viewers if they don't know about really what Sultan Abdul Hamid did in terms of defense of Palestine? Well, regard just before mentioning that, yeah, there there was a few books that were published. Wow. Uh, these look interesting. In, in, in the, well, the date of the, these publications is uh, in the 90s. Okay. And these were books that when I, when, when I was in my teen years, yes. I read these works. So this, this work, this is two editions of the same work. Okay. So I, I'm sure you've not seen this. No, as well. I haven't. So this, this uh, pamphlet is called Why Did Britain Colonize India? Mm. An Islamic Perspective. Now, why I'm mentioning India here is because what the person mentions, the author mentions at the bottom, is uh, Britain used the resources, men and materials of its largest colony, India, to destroy Muslim empires in South Asia, Africa and the Ottoman Caliphate. In 1917, during the First World War, the British Empire colonized its penultimate colony, Palestine. So, what this book, uh, this book was something that influenced me in my uh, formative years. Mm. What the author, who is an historian, proposes is that the purpose of colonizing India was to extract the wealth of India in order to colonize Palestine. And to do that, it was essential to destroy and dismantle the, uh, the Khilafah. Mm. Now, Someone may say this is conspiratorial, but Columbus set off in search of India mm. in 1492. Queen Isabella came to the throne just in 1492 or 1491, just after the Muslims had left Spain. Mm. And they commissioned a, a, a colonial uh, voyage in order to conquer India. Mm. Now the purpose of, and that was just at the back of the Crusades, because the Muslims retook uh, Al-Qudsu Sharif in 1170. So when the Muslims 
retook Al-Quds al-Sharif in 1170, that wound was still fresh in the Western mindset. So uh, the, entire, uh, the entire process of colonizing India was to extract the wealth of India, which was India at the time was the GDP of India was uh, for the entire world economy was over 20%. Mm. So India had one of the best economies in the world, which by the time the British left, it was totally destroyed. And we know about the Bengal uh, famine. And the only way, reason why they made the railways was in order to transport weapons and whatnot. So this book, Why Britain Colonized India in Islamic Perspective, this book is unavailable in bookshops now. You will not find this in Islam. People do not stock these type of books. There was a series of books that came out at that time. The hypocrisy of parliamentary, uh, parliamentary democracy, a Muslim view. Mm. These books were removed from bookshops. So if there is anyone willing to scan and place these books online. Very interesting. Um, there was also Vasco de Gama and the Naval Crusades. Uh, an Islamic perspective on all the 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 post Crusader period of uh, the so started with Elizabeth the first who was a contemporary of uh, Akbar the guy who formed uh, the so called Deen Ilahi and was opposed by Mujaddid al Fithani that was in the 1600s so if you study the history from 1600 up to this time of Sultan Abdul Hamid al Thani what do we have a Sultan Abdul Hamid al-Thani being approached by Zionists. Mm. They offer him millions of gold coins, which is equivalent to, to today's billions of dollars, that they will buy Al-Quds sharif And what did he say? Uh, meaning that the letter that he wrote back to them is in this book. So this book, even though it's in Arabic, again... With that regard, I would encourage our young people to learn Arabic because uh, Arabic is the un unifying language of Islam. I mean, you do not complain that these books are in Arabic, learn Arabic. But the letter that he wrote back in response to the Zionists at that time in the 1800s is also recorded in here that mm. he said that the blood that has been shed for the land of Palestine has been the blood of my forefathers and it's not mine, meaning not his personal property. Oh. To give away to the Zionists, and he turned down their offer, and that was really why he was opposed, because the Young Turk movement and their involvement with the Masonic lodges, which is not conspiratorial, meaning uh, de uh, the the book that was referenced, uh, this Before, book, yes. Peace to End All Peace, uh, David Frumkin, this book mentions the roots of the Young Turk movement with uh, Freemasonic free lodges which were prevalent in Greece and Europe at the time. I mean, the, the, the period of Abdul Hamid's um, Khilafah was brought to an end by the Young Turks. And um, as well as the Masonic lodges that some of them were involved in, there had been set up within the Beirut, Istanbul, other places in the Khilafah, um, centers where uh, colonial ideas were spread so they would and they would form part of what were called scientific associations or cultural associations often they would enlist the help of of uh, of people in those areas sometimes christians uh, sometimes druze to start promoting the influx of secular ideas and in my, in my reading, I've come across quite a few of the founders of the Young Turk movement were either influenced by these 
or they had actually travelled to the West, to Britain or France, to study and had been affected by the ideas um, at that time. And this is um, the interpretation of the hadith, Antalid al-Amatu Rabbataha, some scholars have given. Okay. That the slave girl should give birth to her mistress. mistress. Some of them has, have said this refers to the way of thinking. That in previous times, the way of thinking, the foundation of our thinking was the Quran and the Sunnah. Yes. But in later generations, the foundation of thinking is the secular mindset. Yes. And then in reinterpreting the Quran uh, with the secular mindset, when the traditional way is interpreting the world with the Quran and the Sunnah. Yeah. So they have interpreted that as being, and that brings me to why was a Sultan Abdul Hamid Afani so successful? Yeah. Because he preserved all the main precepts of Islam, which is Islam, Iman, and Ihsan. MashaAllah. So in um, Iman, he was a Maturidi, stuck to traditional theology. In, in Islam. Islam, he was a Hanafi, meaning traditional interpretations. He was not like those people who had uh, been influenced by the colonial mindset in Egypt at the time. Yes. Muhammad Abdu and others. Yes. He was not affected by that. Yes. He stuck to that. And we know the codification of the Majallatul Ahkam. Yes. Which is a Hanafi yes. codification of how governance. Yes. Uh, and it's based on Islam. Yes. Then the third is Ihsan. He had a Sufi Sheikh. He was a part of the Shadili order. And the letter he wrote to his Sheikh when he was in exile, he was in prison. In 1911, he wrote a, a letter to his Sheikh, which is in, in the book of uh, Sheikh Abu Bakr the handwritten letter of uh, Sheikh Abdul Hamid. And then his Sheikh replied, how he actually got the letter to him was through one of the guards. Okay. So one of the guards actually delivered that letter. So he had a spiritual guide also. Mm -hmm. So he maintained the, the identity of Islam as it had been throughout the hundreds of years. But if you notice post Sultan Abdul Hamid, the Islamic figures have lost grasping onto all aspects of the um, Islamic tradition, which the fourth one, interestingly, is Ashratu Sa'a, mm -hmm. the signs okay. of the end, of, signs times. Of the end of times. Because Jibreel alayhi salam asked regarding four things. And why the Ashratu Sa'a important is because it gives us a deeper insight into what is occurring. So, like I mentioned, the nations shall call upon you. Their reasoning is given. They say, is it because we are so less in number and the messenger of Allah says no you are like Uthah meaning the uh, the Muslims will be uh, in large numbers like the froth on the sea but what shall happen he said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will place Al-Wahan in your heart mm. they said what is uh, Wahan mm. he said sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ahubbu dunya love of the world wa karahatul maut ukrahiyatul maut the dislike of death. death yes. So if we observe the period of Sultan Abdul Hamid Thani lived mm. in, mm. Muslims were affected by spiritual ailments also. So he, while he grasped onto spirituality. So here's something I would say, which I don't think necessarily contradicts what you're saying, but actually looks at it from a slightly different viewpoint. Because I would say all the Ottoman Khulafa before Sultan Abdul Hamid would have been, their aqidah would have been traditional Islamic aqidah. Mm. 
they were Hanafi for many years, and they Much were, Bandi, but, but they were they and they were Sufi also of varying different orders, um, and yet, for the best part of fifty years before Sultan Abdul Hamid, from the time of Sultan Abdul Majid the first, they had started to introduce some of these corrupted ideas not just the Khalifa themselves because it was often a people, they were around, people them. around them so there is something about this man in his firasa in his foresight in his political understanding as well that was aware that a lot of the deals that were being done with foreign powers colonial powers which was being done in the, so it's seemingly in the interest so there would have been alliances with Britain against Russia, for example, in various conflicts. But there was this understanding that my enemy's enemy is my friend is not a correct precept. He did not trust these other powers around the world. He recognized that they had their sights on the Uthmani Khilafah, that they were inciting division, that they were inciting unrest. Uh, it's characterized by Western historians that he was paranoid. He was not paranoid. He was facing genuine threats internally and externally. I would say what he had was Firasatul Mu'min, which is fear the the deep Firasa, foresight or deep understanding of a Mu'min, believer. Why, he, he observes with the light of Allah, meaning, yes, the other Khulafa did have uh, outwardly grasped onto those three principles of yes. Islam, but Sultan Abdul Hamid Thani realized and lived those principles. Yes. So he was a man that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave tawfiq to. This is why some of the scholars of Asham in Syria today refer to him as the Mujaddid of the previous century. Mm-hmm. Because of him, they say, the occupation of Palestine was delayed. Delayed, yeah. If it were not for him, uh, Palestine would have been occupied earlier. So that this moves us to the Balfour Declaration. Yes. In nineteen seventeen. Yes. yes. And then the Balfour Declaration was written to whom? To Lord Rothschild. Lord Rothschild. Yeah. The banking family, uh, Rothschild family. So and the Rothschild had uh, family had links with the Zionist movement from before the agenda to colonize uh, Palestine and make Israel was not due to the Holocaust. No. So people make it out that the Holocaust was the cause mm. of the, the formation of Israel. Mm. When in reality, I would say the Holocaust was exploited. Mm. Meaning Jewish victims of Hitler's uh, concentration camps, they they. Uh, problem has been exploited according to me. So when we talk about the Balfour Declaration, many of you will know it, but for those that don't, this was the declaration made by Lord Balfour, the British Foreign Secretary at the time, to Lord Rothschild in a letter which was crafted over many months of negotiation that he promised the Lord Rothschild that Britain would support the establishment of a homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine, in somebody else's country, basically. And um, in fact, I don't know if you know, 
But Balfour himself has often been accused of being an anti-Semite because when he was Prime Minister, he was Prime Minister before he was Foreign, Foreign Secretary. When he was Prime Minister in 1905, he passed a law called the Aliens Act, which was stopping Jewish refugees persecuted in Russia and Europe from seeking refuge in Britain. He was against migration of refugees who were being persecuted in Europe coming into Britain. And the best place for security for them at the time would have been a Dawla to Lufmania. Even though, I want to mention the Armenian uh, genocide. The Armenian genocide occurred after After. a Sultan of the Rahman Al-Fan. I think that's that's a good point. Clarified because people, they mentioned that uh, a million Armenians were slaughtered. But not by a Sultan of the Hamid Al-Fani. This occurred after him. Personally, I believe anything that occurred after Sultan Abdul Hamid Al-Fani was not uh, sanctioned by a legitimate Khalifa after 1908. Uh, additional to that, you mentioned uh, Balfour as being the Prime Minister in 1905. He was preceded by a Prime Minister by the name of Gladstone. Mm. Now, Gladstone was... Prime Minister four times prior to Balfour, as far as I know. But in 19, uh, in 1895, he was the one who said in Parliament that this book, meaning the Quran, mm. if uh, we must get rid of this book from the hearts of the Muslims, it was him. So that tells you about the uh, environment mm. of uh, the political environment of England. Mm. Not much has changed in my view. But the political environment of Britain at the time. I have to say a little anecdote about that. Gladstone was the Prime Minister who stood up with the Quran in the, in the House of Commons uh, saying we had to get rid of this in terms of ruling in the Muslim world. Um, Gladstone House, old house, exists in, the, in London today. It's got one of these blue plaques on the wall saying Gladstone, the former Prime Minister, lived here. It's now used by the Foreign Press Association and I was invited to a meeting there once about 10, 12 years ago and quite a lot of Muslims were there and we made a Jamaat prayer for Asr in his house. So he'll be rolling in his grave. Yes, literally. well, maybe that's not what's all going on in there. <laughs> but but it, it, it actually struck me very much that, subhanAllah, how Allah plans that uh, this man who so opposed Islam that people who live in this country contribute to people's welfare in an extraordinary way and who stick to their Islamic principles and who want to see the return of Islam for the goodness of well, people in the world he and they remove, make jamaat in his house. He, he's, he not only advocated removal of the Qur'an from in terms of governance, it was also from the hearts of the Muslims. Yes, yes. Meaning this book needs to be finished. Yeah. And uh, alhamdulillah, now we are in 2019 and the Quran is recited everywhere. The, the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is here to stay. With, with, I think before we finish, I think we, 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 we should just talk about um, the Young Turks a little bit because you told me in your lecture you were planning to look at some contrasts with Sultan Abdul Hamid's period. Um, what, what was it that you found when you read about the Young Turk era apart from the Armenian uh, Genocide. The Armenian deaths um, and genocide is yeah, a term that yeah, it's the it's I, the reason I, it's called the Armenian genocide. It's a very politicized issue yeah. in Turkey. But I think actually, even at the time, 
the Young Turks were very heavily blamed by people in Turkey for many of the atrocities and problems that they suffered during World War One or were committed during World the War The contrast uh, that you ask about, I'll summarise, is um, firstly the decisions that they made. So Anwar Pasha and the decisions he made, in fact, without the consent of his cabinet at the mm. time, in entering into World War One. Entering into World War One was the greatest mistake that they did. Uh, in uh, Russia alone, over 70,000 soldiers of the Ottoman army uh, were shaheed, meaning martyred in, in Russia at the time, just in World War One. So these decisions that they made uh, from 1914 onwards were some of the drastic decisions that led to the crumbling and disintegration of the entire Khilafah. I believe if a Sultan Abdul Hamid Thani was governing at the time, that decision would never have been made. In fact, I, I, I know someone who's read his autobiography, which is not available in English, but it's in Turkish and in Arabic. And apparently um, in that he, he was aware that the Ottoman state was going to be dragged into a conflict which he was, he very much the policy was to avoid entering into that. So this is another example of his political foresight, actually. And he passed away in 1918. So the same year that World War One finished, yeah. he passed away. Um, interestingly enough, 70,000 plus Muslims died protecting France. Yeah. So secular France was yes. protected by 70,000 Muslims plus who died just protecting France in World War One, Those Muslims were recruited from the, the colonies. Likewise, Muslims who were recruited from India to help in dismantling the Khilafah. Mm. So our weakness is not the strength of the disbelievers. Our weakness is our own yes, spiritual weakness. Mm. Meaning, why I say spiritual is because a spiritual weakness uh, materializes in our political weakness that if we were spiritually strong we would be firm on our faith and if we were firm in our faith we would be politically strong and this there's no better example of this than when we were discussing before Sharif Hussein because he is from the lineage of Ahlul Bayt he is the Sharif of Mecca He's from a family that were loyal to the Ottomans for generations. And it, by rebelling against the Ottomans in World War I, he actually drew resources, military resources, away from defending Jerusalem, defending Al-Quds, defending Damascus, defending Baghdad, to having to defend Hijaz. Uh, and this man can be held heavily responsible for the loss of the third uh, holy mosque, the great holy city of Bayt al-Maqdis, and the great historic cities of Damascus With and regard Baghdad. to that, some people do state if a Sultan Abdul Hamid al-Thani was governing, many of the Arabs who revolted would not have revolted. That's possibly true. And But additional to that, with the Sharif of uh, Mecca, his uh, misguided decisions that he made, uh, some of the scholars have interpreted one of the hadith in the Sunan of Imam Abu Dawood, which mentions that a fitna, a tribulation, shall occur under 
the feet of a person who is from my household. Mm. And after him, there shall be alliances, meaning after that fitna, there shall be alliances, made uh, weak alliances until the appearance of a Dajjal. So they have interpreted, some have said a Saddam Hussein because he also claimed to be uh, from a Sharif lineage. But mm. uh, the Sharif of Makkah, his lineage was, uh, was something preserved, mm. meaning well known. Mm. So some of them have said that the Sharif of Makkah is uh, foretold in, in the hadith of the mm. Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But that period of time is the period of time where Lawrence of Arabia yes. also uh, was active in the Middle East and he was responsible for <coughs> placing dynamites on the, on the railway which a Sultan Abdul Hamid Thani had made. Mm. So his uh, book, uh, which seven, I... Seven Pillars of Wisdom. The Seven Pillars of Wisdom or mm. The Revolt in the Desert and he has a few other works which I have mm. those uh, books. Uh, those make interesting read, yeah, they do, they uh, interesting read, and tell us the, of the mindset of uh, those people who worked in conspiracy uh, in that time, and it gives us lessons for our time also. One thing I found looking at this period is that it's immensely complex in terms of looking at the internal politics of the Uthmani Khilafah, the external factors in terms of World War One and subsequent after World War One the peace treaties which effectively carved up and uh, uh, and um, they they um, they set in stone the current borders today uh, it's a vast subject we didn't even touch the subject Winston of, Churchill yeah with Al Saud family Winston Churchill yeah. alone his role in Egypt and referring to the to the the uh, Sufis who took up arms against the British at the time, said, uh, the, 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 the Rawish, yeah. referring to them as rabid dogs. Yeah, yeah. Um, then Churchill's role in World War One, Churchill's role in dismantling uh, the Khilafah, um, General uh, Allenby. 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 Allenby and Lloyd George, who, who, who called the conquest of Jerusalem a Christmas present for the British people. Um, I, I found this book very useful. Uh, which I'll share with uh, with the viewers, which is written by Sheikh Abdul Qadim Zalloum. May Allah give him rahmah. Uh, it's, it's translated into English. Not an amazing translation, I have to say, uh, but, but it is very good in that it covers a lot of this history. If it has a weakness, it is, that it is not referenced. But what I have found is that many of these works that are available today and online, actually, you can find the references for really a lot of it in the public domain today uh, without too much difficulty. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very useful overview covering much of it, inshallah. I'll gift that to you because that's a copy I have. Um, and the, the other book I'd say from a non-Muslim historian, which is quite balanced, uh, is called The Fall of the Ottomans. The Great War in the Middle East, 1914 to 1920, by a Professor Eugene Rogan. And I would say it is quite honest about how um, the, the conflict in the region was uh, going on. And in fact, um, really how some of the, it's very well documented and very well referenced actually. Uh, but with that, I give a caveat to anyone on any of these books written by mainstream historians that take them all with a critical mind 
Um, and I, I think that book by Mark Sykes will be fascinating to look at because you'll see how he thinks about these things. What, what lessons would you say we can draw from reading this history today? Well, we live in a time where we're seeing a lot of confused Muslims, a lot of people who pray and fast, but when it comes to their political views and actions, they're, they're messed up. Uh, any lessons we can share with people on, on covering this period of history? If I had to say uh, what we can learn in succinct wording, that would be the hadith. Hubbud yeah. dunya wa karahatul maut. Which sums up the problem. Yeah. L- um, love of the world and dislike of death, meaning fear of death. Yes. Or fear of uh, the messages of death. And love of the world so that you fear losing status in the world. Status and uh, the hadith states... Uh, mm. Two hungry wolves set uh, free in a pack of uh, a, a flock of sheep is not more dangerous for the religion of a man than his love of al-jah wal-mal, status and wealth. Yeah. So. Uh, the hadith sums up the problem because if you look at the the Muslim world uh, at that time and today, yeah. uh, the ayat al-istikhlaf, two things are mentioned, yes. strong iman and pious actions. Yeah. Now you say ostensibly people do pray and fast, and, yeah. but there is a weakness of iman that if they are uh, with this uh, LGBT a reinterpretation of yeah. Islam yes. or Islamic ethics and morality. It's only a matter of time where an Imam in a masjid would be pressurized to perform the nikah of two men, yeah. which is a sign of the end of times. This is why yeah. I said Ashratu Sa'a are very yeah. important yeah. because the Min Ashrati Sa'a Nikah Rajuli Rajula. And the word nikah is used, the, a man marrying a man. Mm-hmm. And the, the hadith foretells this. So it's only a matter of time where let's say this LGBT pressure groups pressure some of the masajid that an imam must perform this nikah otherwise he would be labeled as homophobic Mm. or the charity commission will be involved these are just some symptoms of the spiritual problem Mm. now why I mention the spiritual is because some people divorce the spirituality from the politics or the politics from the spirituality while what I have adopted from the, the mashaykh is that they both go hand in hand. They can't be separated. They can never be separated. No. Otherwise, if we just have politics, there's no difference between us and Marxists. Yeah. And if we just have spirituality, there's no difference between us and Buddhists who sit in the in the temple. When Islam has a system of governance and, and a spirituality, and when we know it's something is not feasible, this is where fiqh, jurisprudence and wisdom enter the arena that how different situations uh, the scholars they develop developed al-qawaidul fiqhiyya mm. the legal maxims of being able to deal with any situation that may arise so so many different situations around the muslim world you have muslim minorities in china you have the muslims in syria mm. in yemen in iraq living in different in- environments that they would have to deal with political problems in a different way but all within the parameters of what speaks orthodoxy, meaning within those parameters. Jazakallah khair, that's a very beautiful way of looking at it. I I would 
characterize it from something different that I've learned from this. When I look at the the statesmen in the Ottoman Khilafah in the time of Sultan Abdul Majid I, where they start introducing these Western ideas, you start with people who love Islam, love Khilafah, want to solve the problems that exist, but they're taking an un-Islamic route doing that because they think it's pragmatic. And you end and you move through the young Turks who are basically born and practicing as Muslim to Muslim families who become enamored with secular ideas, who don't want to destroy the Khilafah, who don't want to destroy Islam, but who want to see a more secularized state. And you end up with the likes the hybrid. of you end up with the likes of Mustafa Kemal, who no wants to actually doesn't just want a secular republic. He actually hates Islam and he wants to actually destroy Islam and diminish Islam in the lives of people and promote everything that's Western. And sadly, what you can see is that, in fact, over about less than a century, you've got politicians in that era starting to lose. If you like, the, they were separating the spiritual from the political. They were still holding on to the spirituality of Islam in their daily lives in their prayers, in their fasting, in their adhkar, in their salawat and salams, and all these things. But actually in their political lives, they were adopting something else. And unfortunately, you see that unraveling to the point where, you know, what is said in one hadith, paraphrasing the knots of Islam. Oral, the hadith states, oral Islam. Yes, the undone one by one. Urwatan, urwatan. urwatan. The, the first, the ruling. And, and the, then the prayer will be the, the last. And the last, the prayer. And, and in fact, that's what we've seen over a few decades. And when I, I, I make the parallel to today because I see many people, they think there's nothing wrong with adopting secular politics and as long as the Islam is preserved in the personal life and they don't see where that ends up unraveling within their own lifetimes or within a generation or two. The, uh, the solution is what Imam Malik ta'ala said is uh, that which was good for the first generation is good for the latter generations which is a return to the Sunnah. And in Imam Tirmidhi he has a hadith in the Jami' which mentions that if the rulers did justice and it mentions some of the uh, aspects of governance the effect of that economically would be that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bring about the fruits of the earth meaning baraka so baraka is generally associated with a spiritual metaphysical concept but it materializes politically and economically mm-hmm. that if we have baraka uh, economically and politically we have rulers who have the spirituality and an effect that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates within the states that they govern is that they are economically empowered and likewise militarily empowered. Sayyidun Umar when he sent the army to Egypt under Amr ibn al-As they took time in conquering Egypt. Sayyidun Umar wrote a letter that you Ahdastum. Uh, he mentions that term, which means you, you, your army is sinning, mm. and this is why you are slowing down in conquering Egypt. Mm. 
So when the army done a collective repentance, Toba, they were quicker in conquering Egypt, showing that the spirituality can never be divorced from the what people I don't like the term polit political governance is better. Governance, good, yeah. So uh, the, uh, uh, with governance. governance so when you have rulers who take away spirituality from governance, or ulama who take away governance away from spirituality, they are separating two aspects of the religion. When these things are are one, meaning you, the the rulers need to be advised by the the ulama. So um, inshallah, I think we should book a return conversation on something else inshallah, inshallah. come again yeah and inshallah, uh, uh, inshallah we love uh, and jazakallah khair we hope it was beneficial for all of you watching subhanaka wa bihamdika wa ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah